This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. There we go. Yeah, that was extremely strange. (laughs) Never happened to me. Like I've done I've done like hundreds of these now, and that's the first time my my camera just decided to like freeze. Well, what so what you're telling me is that I'm special. I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) Just take it that way. That's the way to do it. (laughs) Awesome. It's great to have you on the show finally. This is great. Yeah. So good. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and uh, what you're passionate about. Uh, well, I'm Chris Wexler. I'm the CEO of crewnom.com or .co, crewnom. Can we start that over? Sorry about that. I have a D, I have a CO2. I have a .co2. I couldn't get the yeah. .com. Yeah, we, we did. Uh, yeah, the the funny thing is crewnom.com is K-R-U-N-A-M in some small town in Texas. So uh, anyway. <laughs> my my uh my domain was uh, is been owned by T-Mobile. They ran a ad campaign called Hello Future back like 12 14 years ago. Okay. And done anything with it since and they refused to give up the damn domain. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's some lawyer going, "Well, that will probably lose our copyright on that brilliant thing that we made that nobody looked at." So yeah. <laughs> you've had it for 12 years now. You're not doing anything with it. Come on. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, good. Uh, well, are we starting? Are we recording right now or? Yeah, I go in hot, okay. man. He's like, we can okay, always. Perfect. How about that? Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm Chris Wexler. I'm the CEO of Crunom. Uh, we're a public benefit corporation uh, based in the Bay Area. Uh, and, but we have our technology team in London and we have teams in Minneapolis and kind of all over. Um, and we are a technology company that's based really around solving the most intractable problems of the internet. And we started with one of the stickiest and hardest, which is child sexual assault materials. Um, what is parochially called um, child pornography. We don't use that term because pornography implies consent. Um, and with a child, there can never be consent. So um, CSAM, as uh, it's a little easier to say, otherwise it's a bit of a mouthful, is a really big problem on the internet. It's uh, in 2019 and 20, there were um, nearly 70 million incidents reported each year. It's, yeah, it's just unbelievably large problem. I mean, I guess in the scope of you know, billions and billions of people online, it's relatively small, but to those 70 million kids that are being, not only were abused, but are being re-abused every time those images are shared and viewed, uh, that's a major, major problem. And uh, so we have a technology that 
is really kind of the next great leap forward in detecting CSAM. Um, back in 2008, uh, Microsoft and um, uh, created uh, something called PhotoDNA, a great piece of technology. But essentially what it did was uh, use a, um, a technology called perceptual hashing, which fingerprints known images. So if you found it, you could fingerprint it, then easily find it again. So because often these images are coming back again and again and again. So at the very least, they were able to address that. But in the, you know, what, 12, 15 years subsequent, we haven't had another kind of step forward in the technology. Largely, it's a data problem. Um, you can't use AI or deep learning on CSAM because you can't have CSAM. You can't literally hold it. Um, it's illegal content. Uh, what we've done is we've partnered with uh, the UK government and the home office there uh, to train our uh, computer vision algorithm on their CADE database, which is child abuse image database that they've set up. Uh, they, with some foresight, pulled that together back in 2013, and they have millions and millions of images in there. And so uh, we built it initially for law enforcement to help speed, uh, speed investigations. What was happening is these uh, digital um, child sexual assault investigators were spending 70, 80% of their time simply going through materials that was, class, uh, that was confiscated, trying to determine what is it um, problematic, and if so, and then, then what we could get to. But if it's problematic and what kind of problem it was, was 80% of the time. We, we really built the technology to flip that so they could spend more time saving kids. But what um, the home office and we at uh, Krunam really realized is this is a technology that is really important across the whole internet. Uh, because, uh, you know, these perpetrators of this abuse are using the same tools you and I use to like right now talk, you know, video chat, um, uh, file sharing, email, messaging, uh, social media. They're using the exact same tools we're all using to communicate. They're just doing it to perpetrate a crime and uh, damage children. And so we're going and talking to all these companies. We've had a lot of really uh, strong initial pickup within the Bay Area and, and broader in the, in the big tech area because they realize this is a major, major problem too. So it's been a, it's been a bit of a, a wild ride the last year as we've, we've launched this, but it's been, a, but it's exciting. So you actually did use AI. You just had to go somewhere else to train the to find the data to train the models. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, because we can't hold the data ourselves. We literally have to bring our equipment into a Faraday cage that is disconnected from the internet and work um, side by side with law enforcement. They're the ones actually viewing the images and telling us what's going on. And then our data scientists are side by side working on the data. And so it's a unique, you know, you know, not only is, you know, computer vision, computers are really good at cat versus dog. Like it does that really well. And we know how problematic facial recognition can be where it struggles and it's seen millions of faces. Um, when we, you know, when our technology team started this, when Scott Page and Ben Gantz, our two, two of our co-founders, started doing this work, the question was, could AI even do this? Because it's, um, it's implying behavior through body position and context. Um, and that wasn't something, you know, back in 2015 that was known that AI could really do. And so, you know, we're looking at relative body size. We're looking at um, relative state of undress. We're looking at, you know, touching. Um, those are things computers aren't 
perfect at, but we've worked on it for years and put millions of dollars of development into to identify reliably previously unknown CSAM, which is a breakthrough because the, the estimate is 95 to 90 to 95% of CSAM out there is not currently um, cataloged. And so this is something that can really protect online communities. So this content isn't infecting it. It can protect, um, it's designed to protect content moderators. I think that's one of the untold stories of the modern internet is that there are poor souls that have to look at the worst of humanity eight, 10 hours a day. Um, we're trying to protect them by having them either be better prepared for what they're going to see or not have to look at it at all to clear it off of their platforms and to protect the reputation of these companies. But the great thing is those are all good things for you know a Facebook, a Microsoft. Um, while we're doing that, we're actually protecting kids and, and helping feed investigations and getting kids out of danger. And so it's one of those exciting win-win situations in business where um, the tide has turned in the business sense where they really can't ignore this problem anymore because the downside is so strong. And as a result, we're going to be really helping a lot of kids. So it's an exciting time. Excellent. So uh, it, it sounds as if that you, you're actually able to detect brand new stuff, right? And mm -hmm. even stuff that's, do you, do you actually, can you actually detect stuff that's been modified, like, like deep faked and stuff like that as well? Well, we haven't technically tested on deep fake because there, thank goodness, there isn't a lot of examples of deep fake as far as for testing on it. Plus, deep faking is very, very intensive. I didn't realize. I tried. I was tr just trying to playing around with it to see how much work it would be, and it's an insane amount of work. Yeah, it's not easy, which makes you wonder about the woman in what somewhere in Indiana that did deep fake to make sure her kid got on the cheerleading team. That was a lot of work. That's like. That's like deep spite that she went on. I know. If, if you could put put this effort into just helping your child do better, you know, that would be different. Yeah. It, it might have helped. might have helped. Um, but, well, but, you know, we're confident that it's going to work that work on deep fake. And um, we're also seeing the, the first stages of kind of CSAM created whole cloth. Um, uh, because the way our technology works, it's using computer vision. So it's really looking for cues as we went back to look at how to kind of test how the algorithm works you really want to first get the algorithm going you know train it and then go back and go well is it really looking for the right stuff because it could just be well we think this is csam because it's in a hotel room because that's where a lot of it is filmed well that's obviously not very helpful um but we went back and it's looking for um context so it, what's interesting is we actually added a classification to the classifier of cartoon hentai manga CSAM because the classifier found it. It wasn't something we were looking for, but it because it's the same visual patterns you see in, re, in uh, real life. Um, and so that content is illegal in most of the world as well. Um, and so we we're confident that deep fake and created whole cloth, it'll be able to identify as well because it's looking for the same visual patterns a human would be looking for. So what was, the, what was the breakthrough that you think you had to, to like get to the point where you are today compared to what other systems are using? It, it's really a data issue. I mean, to be honest, it, it's a combo platter. I mean, I think if you look at the, the, the great story behind Krunam is that uh, our technolo technologic, uh, technology team 
His background is in, has done a lot of Department of Defense and security work. And so they've been working on um, really intensive computer vision, cutting edge computer vision work for 15 years. So, you know, when your cell phone can see better in the dark, you know, they were working on that 15 years ago to help, you know, security cameras. Um, and so we have this great skill set of computer vision experts with deep learning and AI. Um, and, and then the combination combo platter of bringing Scott, um, Scott Page and his team, uh, Russell and, and Simon, and bring them together with Ben Gantz, who was a really forward thinking investigator in law enforcement that said, there has to be a better way. And kind of putting that chocolate in the peanut butter of great, great computer vision, along with someone who could navigate and build a partnership with the home office to get access to the data set. That is really the critical thing. It's not a small amount of effort for law enforcement to, to um, get this technology up in place. Um, we're retraining the um, algorithm on a regular basis, and it's taking 20 to 30% of the lab time of, of the home office to make sure this technology is there because they need it for their law enforcement, but also they want it um, more broadly commercialized because to just you know save kids around the world. So, um, you know, it really was a happenstance of great technology together with access to data that is otherwise inaccessible. And so... Without that, it couldn't have been possible. So there wasn't like a breakthrough in quantum computing or something crazy like that that actually. Well, made I, I will say, you know, I, 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 I Scott, I know that there were elements that they that they've worked really hard to refine the algorithm, but just putting it through like you know, not run of the mill, but fairly standard deep learning algorithms, they were able to get within a range where they felt comfortable. Where with more work, we could get it to a point where it's actually useful. Um, that was the kind of the first eureka moment was that that it could be done this way. And so, you know, there have been things that have been tried that haven't been all that, you know, helpful. We've looked at tried to figure out like location through background and different things. Um, so there's been a lot of trial and error to get there. But, um, you know, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of having access to the right data with the right technology and then continually re refining and improving. And, you know, uh, I think that's typically the less um, sexy story of most technology is that it's um, it's having access to the right gold standard data with the right people that are dedicated enough to really work it. And, you know, that's what we yeah, I think that the data is a huge, huge differentiator. I mean, I think I think this is something that I've been I've said uh, a while now is if we have enough data, we can almost do anything. Right. Is the question is we just don't have enough. But once you get to the certain point where you get, it's almost like there's a tipping point where you hit, you know, enough data to be able to, you know, make all sorts of decisions. And I think that's what's going to differentiate us. It's like people say that, you know, how can you do um, AGI, right? Because, you know, they, you know, you can't create a computer that is as smart as a human. And like, well, you know, humans and computers look at things in different ways. And if you can give a, a computer enough data, like way more data than we'd ever need, it could, probably mimic, you know, a human being at that point, once it gets the amount of data that it needs. I, I think there's, there's two issues there. One is amount. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that a, a five-year-old can see six pictures of a cat and reliably identify a cat, but a computer needs a million. So I think we exactly. have a ways to go on, on the actual recognition skills of AI, like it takes time. 
Um, and, and it will get better. But I think the bigger issue today, and the one that most people aren't talking about, is really the quality of data that AI is trained on. We've, you know, the first stages of uh, AI and, and uh, all kind of deep learning, it's been built on a mountain of kind of questionable, scraped, tagged um, content that may or may not be, a, may or not be tagged correctly. And just like way back in the day, I remember, you know, when I first started working in, you know, the technology space, it was, the phrase was garbage in, garbage out. I think we have a garbage in, garbage out issue in a lot of AI in that um, if you grab 10 million images, but you don't have it properly tagged and categorized and cleaned to train the algorithm, you end up with a, a messy algorithm. And so uh, I think that that's often what we, you know, in the race to get a lot of data, we, you know, the real hard work is in the training of that data. And that's one of the, another one of the major differentiations of how we approach this is we, um, all of our da da data is classified by law enforcement. And so the, these really strong, you know, frankly, heroes that are going and doing this hard investigation every day, they're, we're using a three vote classification system that um, going into the K database of law enforcement. So these are tr highly trained individuals, highly dedicated, that have really um, given an incredibly pristine data set. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, when we look at, you know, some of these weird uh, outcomes, particularly in computer vision, where Google's gotten in trouble with, you know, black people being identified as gorillas or et cetera, it's because of data tagging issues as much as it is volume of data. Um, and so, and probably lack of expertise because nobody had expertise in facial recognition. Um, the nice thing is we've kind of brought all that together. We have pristine data experts and expertise on the problem of uh, child sexual abuse and, and uh, the distribution of said materials. And so I think that the kind of the future of a lot of AI is less generalized. You, you see the open AI worlds and all that that are kind of doing big generalized things. Those are going to be less and less um, useful as you get into really laser-focused, specialized applications. You know, in um, you know supply chain management. Like when you get a supply chain ec management expert together with an expert in AI with great data, that's when AI just becomes truly unbelievable. But often the gap between the, that expertise and the technology is really hard to gap and. So I think that that in the next five years is going to be more and more companies, more and more um, industries bridging that gap between expertise and tech and engineering. Um, and that's the exciting, I think, future of AI right now is just bringing expertise into it. Yeah, I mean, you can't just uh, have your AI watch all episodes of Friends a million times over and suddenly, you know, become intelligent, right? That, that's not going to happen unless, unless all of that, all of that information is tagged properly. Right. Well, and frankly, I, I would watch that episode of Friends created by the AI because I think it would be unintentionally <laughs> hilarious. No, but, but can it learn to be like a human being by watching Friends, like doing an amalgam of all those characters? <laughs> maybe not Seinfeld, but Friends maybe. <laughs> Seinfeld might be a closer view of humanity, unfortunately. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, exact, it's exactly right is, um, 
there's still a lot of real expertise and handholding needed in, in AI. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we've been working really hard to do. Is there ever going to be a point where the AI can help itself or do humans always have to be in this mix? Well, I think particularly when you're dealing with at-risk individuals, um, humans being part of the uh, part of the loop is really critical. Um, whether it's in obviously in the training of the elements, uh, but also in using the outputs of that. So, like when we work with our uh, partners, we're t we're helping them with governance issues as well. So, um, maybe if it's 99% confident that this is CSAM, that you Im immediately quarantine it and report it. Um, but if it's an 80%, th that's where humans have to come in. And what we find is often the humans come in and go, yeah, I'm about 80% sure it's that. But because all of this is not, you know, it's not that black and white. And so humans still play a major, major role in content moderation, um, et cetera. I, you know, I do expect the technology to get there. And my, my joke always with technology is, you know, call me in five years. And then in, in, uh, in, in five years, I'll go call me in five years. Um, you know, I think there's some things that we, we always expect tomorrow that we're, are always five years out. You always expect um, everything tomorrow. Come on, man. You know what it's like. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I do think eventually we will get there in the, in the area of unprotected speech because it's such a societally critical issue. You know, whether it's CSAM or violence, um, threats to violence, um, cyberbullying, these are critical issues that the amount of energy and resources are going to be thrown at um, that. And, and right now it's, you know, impacting the bottom line of these major digital platforms that are making money hand over fist. Um, they're going to, they're throwing huge resources at it. And so I do think it'll become more and more automated over time, but it's going to be a while before humans are out of that loop. And frankly, when humans get out of the loop is when you get to kind of those dystopian, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Cylons becoming sentient, that, that's the worry. And so, um, you know, science fiction is just as simply expressing a concern about um, kind of technology running autonomously. Uh, you know, they were ahead of where we are, where we are technologically. But frankly, you know, that's why humans have to be part of every step of this, because it could, it could become fairly, um, uh, Unfair, inherently unfair. The other, the other inherent problem with any data that AI is being trained on is that it's inherently backwards looking and it's um, really seeped in culture as it is today. And so I think the last thing we want to do is create a completely autonomous system based on, you know, the last 20 years of data and lock in the biases and blindnesses of our society today for the next thousand years in our AI, um, because you're only as good as the backwards looking data. And if there is um, specific bias, uh, racial, gender, fill in the blank, um, regional, um, built into the data, that's, that's gonna perpetuate th those inequities. And so, you know, right now we're generating a lot of data in the developed world. Um, the data probably looks very different in Africa, but it's not even being collected. And so if we build everything on the data today, it isn't a full look at the world. Even if we get millions of data points, it's still the wrong data points. Yeah, but if you think about it, I mean, human beings are kind of biased machines. It's almost impossible, or maybe it is impossible to remove it. I mean, how can you possibly remove it without allowing the AI to remove it for you? 
Well, I think part of it is um, we need to do a better job on um, de-biased data sets. We don't have those right now. Um, largely because if you look at like, a, and it's, it's kind of this weird backwards problem of uh, gender, ethnicity, there's certain protected classes, right? So we don't even collect the data. So we can't even go back and double check our data sets to see if they're, they're working right or not. Unless right, there's like a lot of work. Amazon and their, their AI based hiring practices or recruiting mm -hmm. recruitment practices, right? Yeah. I mean, and so, and that, and that's an issue we're going to have to deal with on a regulatory and societal level on how, how we regulate the algorithms. I think a lot of it is having human checks at the right time. So, and, um, it's never going to be perfect, but if you, if, you know, like one of the things we do is we go and look at the results and go, does that match up with the other data that we have? And if there's a, a anomaly between the two, um, then we have to really dig in and go, well, is the algorithm finding a pattern that we didn't know, or is the algorithm um, off course? And so that's constantly, you know, we've been doing those kind of fine grained uh, adjustments for 20 years. Um, and then the, then you have the bias sitting with the person doing the fine grained adjustments. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think, um, an inherent problem of humanity is that we're humans. And so we, we, yeah, just, we, we constantly work on it. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what did Groucho Marx say? I don't want to be part of any club that I've been, I'd be accepted to. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the, 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 on some levels that's AI there, there are, I mean, there are going to be inherent problems, but we have to be ethical and deliberate um, when we work on it. And I think when we do that, we get much better and better outcomes. Right. So, I mean, right now, I think you, this is in a really great spot because pretty much everyone agrees what you're working on is, is positive, right? But I can see variations of this that might not look so good to some sort of future folks. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that? I mean, could, could this be used for evil at some point? Well, one of the things we're really careful about is making sure our technology is um, really strong, uh, strongly protected because AI could be used to do deep learning. And so theoretically you could turn an algorithm like ours around to actually generate um, CSAM. And so we make sure that we have the protections in place. So, so someone who gets their, if someone uh, with bad intention gets their hands on it, doesn't go and create, oh, here's, you know, here is CSAM either from our training set or otherwise. Um, and so, the, I mean, that is one of the worries you have. Um, by and large, we're like a virus scanner though. I think that's the best analogy to think about um, is that we're holding up a, a template and going, is this what this? Nope. Is this this? Nope. Is this this? Nope. Because we've stripped out um, personally, we're not identifying individuals. We're not, I mean, by and large, the algorithm found that um, because so much CSAM doesn't have faces because the perpetrators are trying to get away with a crime. Um, we're not really using facial we're not using facial recognition in this. And so some of those problematic areas are there are gone. And so, you know, if you're looking at just, Hey, is this something that is problematic? We better check it. It's a, it's much harder um, to really use it in a problematic way. Now that said, we're constantly trying to, you know, just had a conversation with an expert in end-to-end uh, -end encryption and, uh, and privacy and going, okay, how do, how do we fit into that world? Because, um, in a kind of zero trust environment, obviously you can't be scanning, people aren't scanning things, but then are we just creating a haven for um, organized crime and um, 
and perpetrators of these kind of crimes, we're an edge case where everybody goes, yeah, you probably should be looking for that. But, you know, at what point do we, does the needs of the, of the um, survivors and victims overcome the need for privacy? And that's really where the, I think the push pull comes the most with our technology. So does it work only on visual representations or do you, does it do audio, video? I mean, does it do everything? Images and video, um, we expect to have live streaming available as a, as a capability sometime this year. Um, that's also a fundamental difference. Right now, all the technology works on images. So we also work on video. And what's critical about that, we talked about 70 million images or 70 million reports of CSAM. Um, about 60% of that are video. I mean, everybody has a really great camera in their pocket these days. And um, so a lot of it is video. Uh, and so it's really, you know, that was one of the things we really wanted to work towards is having a video classifier. So we're the first, uh, um, first to market with that. Um, and live streaming is actually, particularly in the age of COVID, has been a broad growth area for um, child sexual abuse. People are meeting up on a, a chat and uh, exchanging Bitcoin, and then they're doing a live chat with um, children often in a developing world, Philippines, Thailand. Um, and forcing them to do shows for them. So it's this horrifying mix of using modern technology that, you know, you and I are connecting, so, you know, and having a great conversation about, but they're perverting it for evil in this case. And so having a, something where um, we're not listening in, we're not doing anything, but we're looking for visual patterns of illegal activity seems like a fairly good trade-off on a privacy basis. Um, we don't have audio in our classifier right now. Um, we are, we're, we're working on it, it's on our roadmap, but it's a much trickier thing because then you're getting into um, different languages, different cultures, different slang. Um, image, you know, images are fairly universal globally, which is helpful. And so as we, you know, delve into the audio space, it's a, it's a very different and much, even more difficult problem. So, but it's something we think we'll need to get to eventually. I guess the other concern I have is that, um, is there a possibility that at some point, you know, repressive regimes might buy this technology and want to use it to suppress speech? I think that that is a concern. And we actually, you know, um, are very careful about who we sell the product to. Um, we're careful about, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, we probably wouldn't sell this to TikTok because of the um, ownership of the Chinese government. Um, and that's partially because of a repressive regime partially because of um, uh, intellectual property rights not being respected very well. Um, but, uh, you know, because what we're, our technology is technically looking for something that's illegal, prob I, you know, probably not. They'd have to both install the illegal content then find the illegal content, which they, you know, frankly could do today without us. Um, but yeah, it's always something we're worried about. And so we, we are careful about who we, uh, who we partner with. That's good. Cause that's, my, that's my concern is that, you know, all of these, is it, that's the thing with technology, right? I mean, it's like you can, it can be fat, fantastic for a specific purpose, but then it could be easily flipped to, to nefarious in nefarious ways. And especially with this, I mean, there's so many ways it could go bad. I'm just like, I'm glad you guys are keeping on top of it. Yeah, as a student of history, unintended circumstances is what's pretty, pretty much driven all of history. So, you know, we're trying. <laughs> I know, it's true, right? <laughs> I mean, one of the things I keep saying, 
think it through, even thinking it through a few lay a few layers, you know, will get you uh, further ahead than what because I think a lot of a lot of times. Um, you know, these are the, the way decisions are made. Decisions are made on, you know, snap decisions are made without thinking through, you know, any of the circumstances beyond. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are. Well, and you know, my history is, you know, I, I, I started in technology. I have a weird background. I was on wall street for a little, for about five, six years in the late nineties. So I got to watch the internet. Well, you must have seen some interesting stuff there. Oh man. I, I, I literally sat across my desk from a CEO who was selling furniture online. And he said, uh, we're only losing 5% per transaction. I went, whoa, what are you going to do about that? I was, that was alarming to me. And he said, oh, we're making it up in volume. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was out of business in six months, but uh, it didn't make sense to me. I got out partially because of that. I like to say the aptitude, but not the attitude. It just wasn't my people, weren't my people. But um, in the early 2000s, I got involved early in the digital marketing space. And um, I think the mistakes I made and we as an industry made in the digital marketing space was, yes, we were careful about personally identifiable information, at least those of us who were responsible were. Um, we created a system that was built more on engineering necessarily, the engineering possibilities than necessarily uh, the right approach. Um, and we had basically all of our main, you know, people selling into us as advertisers. I was working with companies like Porsche and Harley Davidson and Microsoft. I was, you know, they were all my clients from one time over time. And um, the engineers ran the show. You know, if you look at Facebook, it's an engineer led organization. Oh, very much and, so. Yeah. Very and much so. as a result, what you have is organizations that are like, well, if I had that data, I could do this but not enough people in the organization going, should we do this? Um, you know, there just weren't enough in, in, you know, and I was part of that. I was, you know, I'm culpable in part how this was built. Um, I thought about it in the context of, Hey, if I do this, will it end up on the front page of the wall street journal? And will I get fired by my client? Like I worried about that, <laughs> but um, it was probably a fairly selfish worry, but um, I don't think there were enough people thinking, should we be doing this? And so, you know, that's something that's deeply built into what we're doing. Um, and frankly, it's what I think most of uh, the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the more mature Silicon Valley is really thinking, should we do this um, is, a, is a critical thing. Now, the nice thing is um, because they didn't think about it, it's a business opportunity for those of us who want to make the world a better place because we can provide solutions because they didn't think about it early enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you think about it, that feels right. It falls right into move fast and break things, right? Because they're basically breaking things. Yeah, and little <laughs> did they know they were breaking society and lives at times. I mean, I think I think they didn't realize the stakes when they said that. And I did, you know, and I didn't have any problem with them saying that at the time. I have a problem with it now because I think we're for the first time seeing the stakes. And I think when, you know, it, it brings me back to kind of how technology typically gets adopted. Um, it took, it takes society about 30 years to adjust any major technological breakthrough radio. It took 30 years television. It took 30 years. Um, and so when you look at the way the internet's come in, you know, the first 10 years is, Hey, this is real. And I was involved in that. Hey, this is real. And I, um, then it was, how do we scale it and make, you know, connect the world and kind of the social media um, era and, and, and digitize everything. And we were just excited to plug in all the 
plug in all the connections. And it was powerful and a lot of positive things came out of that. Right now we're in the kind of moving from an 8-bit world to a 64-bit world and hopefully get to a photorealistic world. But when you get to that finer and finer grain, you start after really thinking about the negative side effects. So if the, the last 10 years was about enabling free speech, um, I think the next 10 years are going to be about protecting communities from harmful speech. Enabling free speech seemed Herculean and amazing that we could do it. I think actually protecting ourselves from harmful speech is a bigger task and is going to take as much effort because, um, you know, when you think about the First Amendment, everyone realized, oh, that's my right to speak, but it doesn't give you the right to make true threats. It doesn't give you the right to um, obscenity, such as um, bestiality or, or child um, sexual abuse materials. It doesn't give you the right to blackmail. And um, so there are elements um, that are edge cases that we as a technological or um, community need to address. And that's going to be the next 10 years is, and the question will be, do we solve it? Um, do we solve it elegantly or bluntly? Um, and if it, the, the more blunt the solve is, the, the more damage it is to the overall community. And so, you know, I'd frankly rather come up with an elegant te technological solution than have an 85 year old Senator from some, you know, that's never really used their smartphone be the one to tell us how to do it. And so, um, we're at a, we're at an inflection point right now. And I, I'm, um, I'm hoping we can find an elegant solution to continue to enable the amazing advances that technology has given us in communication and shrinking the globe without really um, having, you know, millions and millions, if not billions of people damaged in the process. And, uh, you know, we're probably, you know, we probably first started really seeing this in 2015, 16 was when it really came into the big public consciousness and we haven't done much since. And so, um, you know, those are five lost years that we need to make up for as a, as a, as a technology class. And so I'm hoping, you know, I know we're going to be one part of that, but that's really our vision is to really, you know, get it to be really smooth and fine grained and uh, a more healthy community for everybody. Yeah, because I think a lot of a lot of the backlash now is pretty blunt, right? There's not a lot of there's not a lot of um, scalpel like moves here. It's like, okay, shut this person down, or shut that person down, or shut their whole stream down, or whatever. Instead of actually looking at it in more detail and going, you know, are there specific elements here that are a problem? You know, are they a problem? Mm -hmm. You know, are they are they a problem generally? Is it a, is a community standards things? What is the community? I mean, it's hard to even define. When you say community standards, what community are you talking about? Are you talking about the community of where you live? Are you talking geographic? Are you talking about, you know, within your filter bubble? Like what exactly is? So I think there's a lot of missteps going on right here, right now. And they, they really need to be, there really needs to be a lot more, like you said, fine grain control over, you know, what is and isn't, what should and shouldn't be allowed. And I think it sounds like you, your, your tools do that. But if we could just stretch those to other things, that'd be great. Well, you know, and, and I mean, we all, our vision at Kurnam is that this is our first step and then we'll move into more areas. And so that's really our long-term goal. Um, you know, that fine-grained control, it's interesting, like um, in the in the, UK, in the EU, they've really, you know, with GDPR, they've really gotten a little more fine-grained control of your personal data. And they've always given consumers more control over their personal data. IP addresses is, uh, is personally identifiable information in Europe, and it isn't here. You know, there, there are certain definitions that are just um, more uh, restrictive uh, for the technology platforms in Europe. 
Um, but you know, that's, I think, a just figuring out where that control lies. Some will be consumer control where I can get to control my data or what you know about me. Some will be what the platforms can control. Um, and I think that that's where it's a cost to them. And so, you know, when you look at, you know, Facebook or Twitter or fill in the blank, kind of pushing back against some of these controls, it's because it's, a, it's a adding cost to what is an incredibly profitable business. And Wall Street doesn't like adding costs. Like that's exactly the opposite of what they like. And so, um, you know, they're trying to kind of play the game on a financial basis of what's the least I can do without impacting my bottom line. But you're seeing them invest millions and millions of dollars into trust and safety, into integrity. Um, the question is, is it enough? Is it too late? Is, or, you know, I think they're probably right now they're trying to avoid regulation. Um, but uh, I think, I think that's a lost cause. Regulation is coming. The question is it's, what form will it, it take? The question, well, and you know, what's interesting about it is will that regulation just protect the big players? Um, I think when you like, look at Facebook being all on board for regulation, they're just trying to pull up the drawbridge because if all that regulation comes in, it's going to be really hard for competitors to ever have the, have the um, financing to ever compete, but that's here nor there. Um, you know, regulation is often a friend of large established companies. And so, you know, if, if the current players want to pull up the drawbridge, they should push for regulation right now because they actually can afford to comply much harder for a scrappy startup. And so uh, it, it'll be interesting how we balance uh, regulation and innovation because uh, I think the stakes are even higher in a digital world than they are. And they're pretty high in the physical world. And so they're even higher in a digital world. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of um, um, sort of jostling around to figure out where where the sweet spot is. And I think no one's finding the right spot because you've got people cut off over here. You got people allowed over here. There's just, and, and also the whole, this whole, you know, dropping people into filter bubbles and you know, sort of creating conflict between them. That seems to be, it seems to be like a profitable venture. So that's why they're not going to stop doing it. So it just seems to me that they're, they're, they're fighting all these different battles and you know when you when you step back and look at it, you go, oh, now I understand what they're trying to do. But you know when you're in the fray, it's really really difficult. Well, I mean that that's just a function of having an algorithmically driven community. Um, and I'm I did algorithmic uh, advertising all the time, and and it was about finding the right metric to move. So like initially, everybody's like, oh, it's about clicks, and then we discovered clicks didn't really. Ev- actually equate to anything in business. And so it was always trying to find the right one. I think, to be honest, uh, a lot of these platforms have, when you only optimize towards revenue per page, it actually encourages you to keep the worst and most uh, kind of train wreckish type content out there because the paradox is the closer it gets to illegal, the more interaction there is because everybody's like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Um, the paradox is the worst content is the most profitable content. And so, um, you know, where a, a, a company draws the line is really critical. And, you know, unfortunately, Wall Street has been punishing them for drawing the line in the, the proper, you know, societal place because it hurt their bottom line. And so hopefully we get to the point where, you know, uh, we find a better way to do that. But it's, it, you know, there's just so many things at play, but it's, you know, it's algorithms gone awry because it's all about money. And, you know, the worst of the worst is always the most interesting because, you know, we all like a car wreck. 
that's like human nature thing, right? I mean, that was journalism from day one. It's like the, the, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Exactly. So we're just seeing agor- algorithmic bleeding now. Because exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I, I keep thinking of that movie, The Paper from the 90s. It's like uh, 200 people died on a ferry. Uh, 10 were American, one were New Yorker. And like, okay, we'll cover it. You know, they like they had to figure out what mattered to the people. Um, the algorithm makes that decision quickly and unfortunately gives you, you know, feeds our most kind of base, you know, base interests. And so we need things like Kronom to stop people from these damaging base ish, um, instincts. And, you know, that's why we're here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's think like a futurist time. It's 2031. Where is the world going to be? Uh, I think we have finally, as a society, uh, um, completed the long evolution from organizing around geography to organizing organizing around ideas. Um, if you look back to the 1880s, like the printing press, pre-printing press, you only knew your community. You only knew your little tribe. And then the printing press made it a city and you might find your tribe within that city. Then we had this kind of false, we'll look back at the 19... 60s and 70s and 80s as this weird technologically driven um, anomaly of mass culture. We're now splintering back apart on uh, based on ideas. And so by 2031, I think the nation state probably is at risk. I think there's very little reason for a nation state in 2031 because um, they'll be, well, they'll it, be, it'll, it'll reform. It'll be, you'll be a corporate state or a local state or a community state. There'll be, there'll be all these reformed states. Yeah. Much like when, uh, we had, you know, you had trade happen and all of a sudden the Venetians became really powerful, you know, you, that was driven by trade or, you know, and so I think we're going to be organized around ideas. And so as a result, you know, the question is, um, you know, how much, uh, how much does that physically mean that we actually shift around and reorganize physically? I, I don't know, but it, um, it also means, you know, the office is probably gone. Like I would not buy commercial real estate ever. Um, uh, right now, oh, yeah, it's, that ship it's sale. pretty brutal. I mean, this last year has proven that, but, um, you know, as geography becomes less and less important, that fundamentally shifts everything we are and who we are. Um, and it means that places with, uh, land, uh, become uh, for, for people living kind of more space, probably spaces us out. And if we can do that in an ecologically safe way, that'll be interesting. I think uh, the other, inter- I think the other you know, kind of thinking like a futurist, um, it'll be interesting because I think by 2030, 2031, we'll be probably at energy abundance as um, we crack solar. And what, how does that fundamentally change how we organize um, our economy and our society when electricity and power is really no longer scarce. The entire American experience has been based on us being an energy power. First it was whale oil, then it was actual oil. And, um, you know, and so uh, you see that changes dynamics in global politics, that changes everything. Energy abundance will be a major, major thing. And so that that is a something that's going to be really fascinating to look at and see, you know, hopefully it democratizes, um, small d democratizes uh, uh, abundance uh, into the southern, uh, global southern hemis- uh, hemisphere. Because if we can get some of those technologies, all of a sudden um, development is much more possible in more remote areas. Um, and so you know, we, we might see actually a little more balancing there for the, you know, the bottom billion. Um, that would be a, that would be a very positive outcome of that. 
That's really interesting. I know, I know we all, I think a lot of us want the post-scarcity society. And if energy ends up being the first thing that falls, maybe that's the domino that knocks everything else over. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think resources will also be, you know, I I, I don't know if water and minerals will be something that is post-scarcity. I just don't know how that works unless we go off planet. Um, Energy is one that's probably the first, first one to tip over. Um, And It'll be interesting how, you know, what's the uh, ancient curse? May you live in interesting times. We're about to live through some really interesting times. Well, energy <laughs> might, might push everything else out because you can create, like, then we got the, when, then we, of course, we have the replicator, right? Once you get, once yep. you have, mm-hmm. once you have yeah. limited energy, then you can build replicators, right? And then I, once you have replicators, you have everything. <laughs> I, I, I think the other major change that I'm looking forward to is being in a post car ownership society. Because I think we're heading towards. Oh, yeah, that's a good that one, has, and that has fundamental shifts of how we use space. Uh, parking lots become usable space for either housing or retail or fill in the blank. Um, and your garage probably is where you put your replicator, probably where you put your you know garage size three uh, D printers, so you can buy your you know and print your next sofa. Uh, you know, it fundamentally shifts manufacturing and fundamentally shifts real estate. Um, it'll be, um, I think that that will be another, you know, 2031 is 10 years away. It's probably a little too close, but um, that could be a really interesting, uh, interesting approach. I think, you know, it'll much be like horses. The only place you drive a car is, uh, is on a track somewhere. Um, and the, only the real rich will drive their own cars for, for right. sport. <laughs> well, I'm desperate for a post driver society because drivers, human beings i i think we've lost the ability to drive we just simply have lost the ability to drive we should just hand it over to the ai already they, they know better than we do i couldn't agree with you more i think it's it i think we've underestimated how complex that is you make thousands of decisions a second and we do it while eating a big mac it's probably not the best approach <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's too bad you like you, you, your 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 car can't detect that you're eating a Big Mac and it's going to auto drive mode or something like that. <laughs> exactly, that's coming. That's coming. Exactly. Very cool. This has been this has been really interesting. So, uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, well, LinkedIn is always a great spot. I'm open to connect there. Uh, Chris Wexler. I'm 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 open there. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Chris Wexler. Um, and uh, uh, you know. We're a B2B company, so uh, LinkedIn's always the best way to go. I mean, I, I'm one of the few people in the world that actually loves LinkedIn, so there you go. Wow. <laughs> well, I love it, too. It's a great place. So and if you want to learn more about Kurnam, we have kurnam.co is our is our website. It's ugly right now, but the new site's coming soon. .co, that's important. .co. Yep, so I'd love to be able to like revisit you in a couple of years and see where, you, where you've gone to, so maybe we can, we can do this again in a while. That'd be great. I'd love that. That'd great. be wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.